I'm going to ask you to do something different today. I'm going to ask you, would you just grab the person's hand next to you? We're going to say this thing in unity today. We're going to say it like we believe it. We're going to say it as a body. We're going to get in unity today. Are you ready? I'm just going to grab your guys' hand imaginarily. Lord, today, by faith, we declare that we are walking in the manifestation season. As your faithful remnant, we will house your very presence. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and he has delivered us from all of our troubles and fears. We are no longer victims, but we are victors in Christ. We will not be deceived by the lies of the enemy, but we will give health, healing, and wholeness to the hopeless and those in despair. We will live under your anointing and see the revealed purpose of Christ in each of our lives. We declare your everlasting word on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Give God praise. Would you stay standing for this passage? Matthew 22, 1 through 14, and this is what it says. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do, for to be seen of men, they make broad their felicity, whatever that is, and enlarge the borders of their garments. Sorry about that. And the love, the uppermost rooms at feast, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he who shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, nor nor, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Let us pray. God, you are powerful. You are awesome. And we pray, God, in these moments that you would fill our pastor with power from on high, that we would see your anointing just flow out of him and we would open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You need that. That was a marvelous passage of scripture that Brother Zach read to you, but that was not the right text. (laughs) He looked at 21, I think, instead of 22. So we're going to read verses. uh, uh, If you'll turn with me to uh, Matthew 22, we're going to start with verse 1, okay? Amen. God's got a purpose for everything, doesn't he? Isn't God humorous? And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables, and he said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business. 
And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, burned up the city. And then he said to the servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him. Hand and foot, take him away and cast him into darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. So we're going to get right into the word of the Lord. I want to thank everybody for their participation in worship. We got to go here at the Palace of Praise for the for the what the Lord is speaking to us. That we're going to be unified in our worship and we're going to magnify and rejoice and celebrate Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate each other's victories. We're going to weep with those that weep, and we're going to pray for renewal and revival in our land and in our country and in our nation. America needs a revival. Can you say Amen? So desperately. I want to thank our veterans again. I, I tell you, they're some of my favorite people on the face of the earth. They, they got my heart. I've never been able to serve in the armed forces in a physical sense, but I do feel like I'm a part of the army of the Lord. I feel like that I am a part of a spiritual army. But those men that have fought and those women that have fought and served in all of those different capacities, I want to salute you again. I am amazed when I looked around seeing Emmett and I seen Denny Smothers in their uniform. I thought, how in the world can they still fit in those uniforms after all those times? And, and, and I thought, man, if, if you try to put me in some of my pants that, that I wore in my 20s, we would have difficult. <laughs> Amen? Uh, I mean, one leg would not even fit around the waist hardly. That's how skinny I was. And somebody, I was bragging on them, and somebody said, oh, that's not it at all. I meant good, and they said, don't you know when you get old, you shrink? So, you know, I, I don't know what's happened to Denny and Emmett, but nevertheless. We're going to get right into the word of the Lord. How many love the Lord? Yeah. Praise the name of the Lord. This parable of our text is a parable that Jesus taught to his disciples concerning a subject called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't hear a lot about it anymore. You don't hear a lot of preachers preaching on it. Parables, though, are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. That's what a parable is. Parables are stories that take common occurrences and true life customs and use them to, uh, to illustrate profound spiritual lessons. Jesus was the master when it comes to teaching on parables. He could take the custom of the times and teach people about significant spiritual principles and significant spiritual truths because parables would give the people something that they could relate to and it brought it down to the level of where they lived and it would bring it down to the level of their understanding. For example, if he was around a bunch of farmers, he would begin to do a parable about taking a seed of wheat or a seed of corn and planting it in the ground. He began to do an illustration to where they could relate and then he would apply a spiritual principle to it. If they were around uh, people that understood the Jewish wedding customs, he would talk 
talk about the Jewish, he would relate something to the uh, customs of the Jewish weddings. If he was around pottery, he would talk about the potter and the clay. If he talked to, you know, even the apostle Paul used illustrations for the, uh, the uh, races and the, and the Olympics and different things in order to get across spiritual lessons to us as people that could relate to it. He could take a simple parable and use it as an object lesson to teach people spiritual truths that would be hard to understand any other way. So we're going to break down this parable a little bit because he wants you and I to understand of an event that is going to be taking place here soon with the church. This parable of the wedding feast in our text was the third parable that Jesus taught to the Jews in the temple concerning the kingdom of God. And this parable is of a prophetic nature and it reveals to us some powerful last day end time truths that you and I are going to have to uncover and that you and I are going to have to investigate here just for a moment. This is the parable of the wedding marriage feast and it deals with the guest of the wedding and it deals with the garments of the wedding. We're not going to be able to get into the garments of the wedding. There's some great fabulous teaching there but because of time I'm not going to be able to get to that point. But the parable begins when Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven unto a certain king who plans a marriage for his son. And the marriage that he's talking about is known in scripture as the marriage supper of the lamb. That's very important. Some of you have never even heard that term. Some of you are quite familiar with that term. But it is the supper that takes place immediately after the rapture of the church. When the church is raptured out, I want you to know where we're going. We're going up into heaven and it is there that we're going to have a reception dinner with our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is there that you and I are going to feast for seven years while there's seven years of tribulation upon the earth. It is God's marriage supper that he has planned for his son Jesus Christ and his bride and that bride being the church. It's when the church is espoused or married to Jesus Christ because presently we are only engaged or we're betrothed to him. That is seen within the parable of the ten coins. You lose one of those ten coins, it's like losing an engagement ring. All of those things fit together. Even the parable of the fig tree fits together with it. Everything is, all of those parables, though they're different parables, but yet they have the same single meaning. He preaches sometimes repetitiously. And it is here that we see that we as Christians, we as a church, we presently hold the position and serve as the body of Christ here on the earth. Those of you that are saved, those of you that are Christians, you're a part of what we know as the body of Christ, the church. How many understands that? That's the title, that's the position that you and I hold right now as believers. Now we understand that them are symbolics, they're titles, in order that you and I can understand our role in this thing called the kingdom of God. I'm a part of the kingdom of God, but the way I'm a part is I've been grafted in, I've been saved, I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm an heir of, uh, of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. But I am called in Scripture the body of the Lord, the working, functioning body of the church. But we'll soon, will not be the body any longer. I want you to know that. It's just for a season. We will become the bride of Christ on the day of the rapture. You will take off the position of the title of the, of the body of Christ and you will take on the title of the bride of Christ. This is what John's seen in his vision in Revelations chapter 21 verse 9 referring to the marriage supper. Listen to what Revelations 21 and 9 says. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, talking about the seven vials of tribulation. He said full of the seven plagues which were the seven plagues of tribulation. And he talked with me saying come up 
hither, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, I want to show you something here. This ought to excite you. While all hell breaks loose on the earth during the time of the tribulation, we as saints, we as the redeemed, we as the born-again believers, we as Christians will be feasting with Jesus Christ for seven years in heaven as the bride of Christ. That ought to excite you. Notice that in order for John to be able to get a glimpse or a view of Christ's bride, the church, he had to move locations. He had to change position. The angel came to him and said, come up hither. I want to show you something, John. You cannot see it in the position and the location that you're at now. He had to be lifted up into the heavenlies, and it was there that he had to leave the earthly vision and see into the heavenly vision in order to see the bride, the church. So this tells me that while the hell is breaking loose, that before the seven vials, before the seven bowls of tribulation is poured out upon the earth in judgment, guess where I'm at? I've got a T-bone stake in my mouth, and I am rejoicing around the throne room of glory. I am going to be a part of the bride of Christ, and it is there that I'm going to feast and love with him for seven solid years. Can you give the Lord praise? That ought to be exciting. Oh, about wanting to go a different direction here. Lord, help me stay on my notes. But this great feast that the Bible talks about is also mentioned in Revelations 19, starting with verse 1. And this is what it says. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Let us be glad and rejoice, verse 7, and, be, and, and honor him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are thee which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true sayings of God. First of all, it's blessed is the man that is called into the marriage, marriage uh, uh, supper of the Lamb. Notice that where the saints are at again during this time, look at verse 1. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. Now there are a lot of people that think that you're going through the tribulation. Honey, you're not going through the tribulation if you're a blood-bought, born-again child of God waking, looking, and being watchful and sober until his coming. Can I have an amen? Can I have a shout in this house this morning? I said, you're not appointed under wrath, but you're appointed to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love to preach on the second coming, so don't get me there. We'll be here all day long. But notice again, these people, much people in heaven. And notice also uh, the topic of the day. The topic of the day is salvation, power to redeem. Listen to it. And they're saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. It goes on and says they even begin to sing songs that the angels would like to sing, that they would like to look into, but they can't. You know what that song is? It's the song of the redeemed. We get to sing a song that the angels cannot sing because we're different creatures. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus. We're the redeemed child of God. Redemption shall be sung on that day and we'll be singing hallelujah to the Lamb. Oh, hallelujah. You might as well lift your hand and praise the Lamb of God in advance. Amen and amen. 
But then look, notice also in verse 7, the mood and the attitude of the day and the hour. It's gladness. It's rejoicing. It's celebration. It's party. It's jubilation. It's not mourning. It's not weeping. It's not, it's not tribulation. He says in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the supper of the Lamb has come. And notice also in verse 7 that the church is no longer referred to as the bride of Christ, but as the wife has made herself ready. We went from the bride to the wife. There's a marriage ceremony that's going to take place. That's symbolic, as you all know. But this isn't the rehearsal dinner, folks. I want to tell you, this is the full reception. There is going to come a day that we're not going to be practicing. It's going to be the real thing. We are going to come up hither, and we are going to be seated around the throne of God, and we are going to marry Jesus Christ as the bride. Hallelujah. Give the Lord praise. Are you looking for your wedding day? Amen. Notice also, verse 8 tells us and identifies who these people are. They are the saints. He mentions their names. This is also the supper that Jesus referred to after administering communion to his disciples prior to his death, and he refused to partake of it with them. Listen to what he said in Matthew 26, 29. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. Now, I don't know exactly what I'm going to be doing on this thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb. I know there's a lot of things that spilled out in Scripture we're going to get to in a moment. But there's one thing I know of a surety that I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be taking holy communion with my Lord. woo Hallelujah. And you know what? We will partake together. Matter of fact, he given me a blessed promise. It's not going to be that he's going to have his own set of communion cups and I'm going to have my own set of communion cups. That ain't the way it's going to happen. According to the book of Revelation and the actual Greek connotation, it means that I am going to sup with him and he's going to sup. We're going to drink out of the very same cup. Oh, hallelujah. That you and I are going to take communion personally with our Lord and Savior. Can you imagine sitting down with him and eating of the bread and drinking out of the same cup with him? Oh, hallelujah. Identifying ourselves as the blood-bought redeemed and identifying him as King of kings and Lord of lords, Master, Sovereign, Messiah of the world. Oh, my goodness. Hallelujah. You see, it's at this marriage feast that God's wine is reserved. In other words, this is the wine that was symbolically spoke of at the marriage of Canaan and Galilee when Jesus turned the water into wine. And then when he done that and he supplied that, they said, why have you saved the good wine until last? I want to tell you, if you think the wine of the Spirit, when we talk about the wine of the Spirit in Scripture, the wine is a symbol not only of the Holy Spirit, but the joy of the Spirit. And let me tell you something. If you think the joy of the Spirit's being good down here, I want to tell you it's nothing but a divine foretaste of glory that's to come because it cannot compare to what's about to be revealed in heaven upon us. There's going to be a great celebration, a joyful occasion that your eye and your mind cannot even comprehend. Now, now that we see that this parable deals with the king, God the Father planning a marriage for his son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at the invitations to this marriage. Are you interested in this? I just felt led to preach it for some reason. In verse 3, we see that the Father sends forth servants to invite guests to his son's wedding. I remember when we were uh, getting ready to marry our sons off and how Jenny had and, uh, sent all these invitations and how we worked and how we anticipated the wedding and how excited we were to get rid of them. <laughs> Pawn them off on somebody else. Hallelujah. 
You know, every parent thinks that the, when they get up there around them teenage years, everybody thinks, man, if I get an empty nest, won't that be great? Until you get the empty nest, then you find out it ain't so great. Amen? But here we were. We were all excited. And think about this is the Father, symbolically, God the Father, literally getting ready to have a marriage ceremony for his son, Jesus. Verse 3 says, and he sent forth servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. First of all, notice that it wasn't just anyone that was invited to this wedding. The invitation at this point was to those that were bidden. The word bidden here means selected, chosen, picked, or special invitation. Now, wouldn't you have liked to have been privileged to be able to be invited by a king to the son's wedding? And here there was bidden, chosen, selected few people that God the Father had in mind to literally uh, to, to invite to this wedding. Verse 3 also tells us that those, was selectively, those that were selectively chosen and picked refused to come to the marriage. Look at verse 3. And he sent forth servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Now notice that. Upon the refusal of these guests to attend, another attempt is given to them. Look at verse uh, uh, 4. But this time, I want you to notice that the invitation is given in a different fashion and with a different appeal. Verse 4 says, and again, he sent forth other servants, saying, tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready unto the marriage. Now, the first thing that we see is the love and the long-suffering that the father makes in his attempt to get these guests to come to the wedding. He sent out these invitations, and the first invitations were ignored. They were rejected, and they refused to come. So he sends out another one. But he gives the guest a second chance to come, and he sends them this second invitation. Where do we see that happening? We see that in Scripture that when Jesus came, he came to the earth, and he had a three-year ministry to where he hung around them, and he spoke to them the things concerning the kingdom of God. The Scripture tells us in the book of John that Jesus came, and he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Acts 10 and 38 tells us how that God anointed Jesus Christ to Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went around doing good and healing all those oppressed of the devil, for God God was with him. The Bible says he looked upon big multitudes and he had compassion upon them and he seen them as if they were a bunch of sheep without a shepherd and he would go and minister to them and love on them and pour into them and it was for three solid years Jesus Christ met their needs. He, he wept with them. He laughed with them. He would bring and set little children in his lap and heal them of their diseases. He raised the dead. He cast demons out of people. He done all of these wonderful marvelous things and he gave them invitations also to this wedding. And we also see the second chance was after his crucifixion, the Bible says that he was with them for 40 days and for 40 nights speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And we see that same second chance in the parable of the fig tree that when the father came into the garden and seen that the fig tree bare no fruit, he said for three years this tree has not bared any fruit. Cut it down. Why cumber it? Why keep working on it? Why waste your time? It's not being Productive, remove it so we can put something else there that will be productive. But the caretaker, Jesus Christ, he begins to intercede over that tree and he begins to say, Give me one more year, let me dung it, let me fertilize it, let me water it, let me care for it. And after that year, if it still does not bring forth fruit, again, there was a second time that God gave this, this, uh, this uh, tree a chance. Now, this tree and also these guests are the 
same identical uh, uh, parallel here, and they both receive a second chance. And we'll tell you who they are in just a moment. Not only does he send them a second invitation, but he sends them different servants. Notice that. Verse 4 says, and again, he sent forth other servants. He uses different men and the messengers trying to reach them through a different approach. That's how much God loves us. Parables are, are, are things that, that sometimes that God has to do in different ways in order that one didn't work. Well, I'll try it this way. And if that don't work, he tries different approaches. He tries different venues. He tries different ways to reach us. Aren't you glad that God's not a God that's just cut and dry? He just give you an invitation. If you don't accept it, then boom, it's over. Aren't you glad when you sit out in that pew and sin and God kept visiting you and visiting you and convicting you and loving you and wooing you that, that because you refused him once, he didn't just go away and never come again. Aren't you God, God, glad God's a God of a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth chance? Thank God he never gave up on us. And here we see that he's not giving up on these guests. And he begins to send, first of all, the first people he sent was the prophets of the Old Testament. And the prophets came and they prophesied concerning this Messiah that would come, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and the prophetic word is to confirm who he was. But they would not adhere to the prophets. John the Baptist was even the forerunner of Jesus Christ who come and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that take away the sins of the world. But they would not adhere to him. And then so after the resurrection, he no longer would send prophets to prophesy about him. That didn't work. He no longer would send the forerunner, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was taken out of the way by his head being cut off. They hated him and destroyed him who was the messenger of Jesus. So what does he do now? He sends the apostles. These are not people that's prophesying about who he is. These are people that are saying, I am the eyewitness of his death and burial and resurrection. I am the eyewitness of his power. I am a partaker of who he is. Can I have an amen? So he tries different messages, different methods, different people, different situations. If God can't save you through a preacher, he'll send a neighbor by. That's how much he loves us. But he uses the different personalities, different talents, different people with several different abilities because the first attempt was unsuccessful. And he loved us enough that he's trying everything that he can to get our attention. That's the way it is in salvation. But we also see that unlike the first invitation, this one is given with a description of the fine feast and the immaculate provisions that await them if they arrive at the wedding. He's given them insight. He's given them a revelation of what to expect at this wedding. He's given them a foretaste. He's given them a vision. Aren't you glad that God gives you foretaste and visions of what is to come? How many are proud of that? You don't have to, you know, you, you know that there's things awaiting and he even gives you descriptions of it a lot of times. In this invitation, he literally gives them a reason for them to come beyond just coming for the bridegroom's sake. He tries to reveal the benefits and the blessings by coming to the wedding. He tries to convince, he urges strongly, he tries to entice them with the descriptions of his goodly provision. Verse four again says, again he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden, behold, not only is the bridegroom going to be that, that ought, that'll be, that ought to be enough to entice us just to be with Jesus. But there, he says, but not only is the bridegroom going to there, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come to the marriage. Now I get to thinking what the apostle Paul said. He said that our present sufferings isn't worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that shall be revealed in us. 
I like what Paul said, eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor is it entered the heart of man the things that God's got prepared for them that love him. Oh, hallelujah. I like it again when, when I, I read in John chapter 14 when Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But if I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to where I am. There you may be also. I love to go to the book of Revelations and study heaven, a whole chapter. You can go read it where John the Revelator sees a glimpse of heaven. He tells you the length of the city, the width of the city, the depth of the city. He tells you about jasper walls and gates of pearls and golden streets and mansions. He talks about the 12 stone foundations all different, being different kinds of color and the sparkling glorious colors of the rainbow. That's a covenant of God that he'll never destroy you ever again. He talks about the river of life that flows through the midst of the city. He talks about the trees of the, for the, the, the leaves of the healing of the nation. He talks about all of that wonderful splendorous stuff and I want to tell you something folks it's a great thing to want to go see the grand and glorious things of heaven but one of the things that I'm going to be able to see is the Lord who died and gave himself for me and I'll be able to lay my crown at his feet and cry out holy holy Lord God almighty can I have an amen I'm here to tell you uh, it's going to be worth it with everything that you and I go through Everything you're struggling with cannot even compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in you if you remain faithful. The preparation reveals his expectation of expectancy. He, he expected them to come. Matter of fact, if the king gave a command, you know, every king would say, well, I gave the command, I'm the king. They'll come. But can you imagine how the father felt when he was rejected and turned down again the second time by those that were bidden? He wants them to have blessings, but can you imagine how he felt by the rejection of his benefits and provisions for their lives? How many times has God always offered us things in the spirit and we reject it? Not understanding what kind of blessings are tied to it. Come on, somebody help me preach. Can you imagine how frustrated and irritated the king must have become by the rejection of the invitation? There's nothing more irritating they want to bless somebody and they won't let you. I was, several years ago, I was coming on the east side and I needed to wash my truck and I pulled in and I somewhat am not a neat guy when it comes to vehicles. And I seen this guy and he's roaming through the trash cans, getting aluminum cans. And I got my wallet out to see if I had any money, didn't have any cash. But I looked in the back of my truck and I probably had I don't know how many aluminum cans, and I had more inside than I did outside. And I started gathering them all up and got them in a big old box that I had back there and all the sacks I could, and I took them out and handed them to him, and he kind of like that, spit on the ground, snarled. I insulted him somehow. I, I didn't mean to say, hey, I feel like you're a bum and you need these cans. He was collecting cans, and I wanted a blessing. And somehow he walked away from that, going down the streets, picking up a can here and a can here, and I had a truckload of cans. But he wouldn't receive them because it was being handed to him by a man that wanted to bless him. And I want to tell you something. Sometimes I think we treat God the very same way. We come into the house of God with all the cares in the world on our lives and God sets these principles out in the scripture that we're to obey. And if we obey him, they're principles of blessing. They're principles of blessing. 
Did you know that everything that God commands you to do, there's blessings tied to it? You're blessed if you obey. You're blessed if you partake. Come on, somebody help me preach. How many know that even when we enter into this fight of faith that Paul talked about, Paul called it a good fight of faith. It's a good thing. You and I, anything we do for the glory of God, whether it's paying our tithes, whether it's having a prayer service, whether it's coming up for healing, if it's anointing with oil, whether it doesn't matter what it is, if God's offering something to you, receive it because it's tied to blessing. And here he is trying to bless and they won't let him. The king had the power to demand everybody to come, but he didn't want them to come because he was the king and he demanded it. He wanted them to come out of their own love for him. And the invitation of any king would have never been refused by anyone in a country here upon the earth. We know that. If a king or a president gave you a personal invitation to mail, you'd make sure you got there. But we see through the parable that the heavenly king has given an invitation and he has been refused by earthly men. Surely, this different approach would get their attention. He's saying, you know, the first approach with the prophets uh, and with uh, just revealing who the king's son was, would surely that would be enough. But if not, I'll tie all of this other stuff to it. But still yet, they did not come. And I cannot even imagine, only a fool would turn down such an invitation. But look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 says, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to a farm and another to their merchandise. The scripture tells us that they made light to his invitation. This means they did not view it as important. They did not even take it to heart. They shunned it as if it was nothing. Their attitude was, oh, it's no big deal. Who cares? It was not on their priority list. It was not on their bucket list. I want to ask you a question. Is God's principles and disciplines on your priority list? Because it was not on their priority list. The scripture also denotes and indicates to us that they had more important matters to attend than to go to such a wedding. Their important matters included going to farms and businesses. Wow, you would have thought it had been more important than that. Can I tell you, the normal everyday cares of life kept them from accepting this invitation. I think that a modern day last day allegory can be gained from this parable for you and I. We find these guests whose everyday lifestyles and responsibilities meant more than the opportunity to be a part of the wedding of the king's son. And sometimes, I want to tell you, the everyday lifestyles and responsibilities and the cares of life sometimes are more important than coming to the house of God and getting into his presence. Every Sunday we're invited into the presence of God. Well, every day we're invited into the presence of God. But let's use symbolics for a minute. Every day is, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night and Wednesday night is a time that the church gathers. For what? A corporate time to meet with God. And there's invitations given. Even the Bible tells us in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not to forsake the assemblies of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as we see the last day approaching. And yet, every single Sunday, there's decline in church attendance across America. The same kind of spirit that was on these guests is the same, same kind of spirit that's on America today. Can I have an Amen. Just like the men in Noah's day and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, on the eve of their own destruction, their concern was this, building, buying, planting, and selling. That's what Jesus told us in Matthew 24. They're eating, they're drinking, and being happy, and being merry consumed them from seeing what was really important. They were living in the world as if it was the only world that they would ever live in. 
It was like, hey, this is it. This, might as well get all the gusto that you can. And this is why the, the Apostle John said in 1 John 1 and 15, he said, love not the world, neither things that's in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they are not of the Father, but they're of the world. And the world is going to pass away. But he that doeth the will of God, it is he that is going to abide forever. Amen. There is no compatibility between the love of the world and the love of the Father. The age-old conflict of serving two masters is the appointed decision of whether or not we're going to accept the invitation of the king to come before the marriage supper. Jesus said it best in Luke 16, 13, no servant can have two masters, for either he'll hate the one, love the other, or he'll hold the one and cling to the other, but he cannot serve God and mammon. What's mammon? Money. People are so wrapped up in the hustles and bustles of life to get more. I believe that we're living in a generation that has fallen in love with the world. Can I have an amen? People today are like a busy colony of ants going to and fro, doing this. A lot of people have two and three jobs, don't have time for anything for the Lord. They're in constant motion to live, to work, to develop, to improve and embellish their lives here on the earth. And I know we got to work, and I know that the, that the Bible tells us the man that don't work don't eat, but I also know that everything's got to be done in moderation. And let me tell you something, folks. It's not all about setting yourself up for retirement. It's about setting yourself up for eternity. Can I have an amen? Mankind does everything in their power to live longer and enjoy this earthly life to its fullness and well we should, but with no thought of ever given to the longer, never-ending lifespan of eternity. This life is to prepare us for the more important life, eternal life that has come, not rob us from it. And yet this, this is to prepare us, this life down here. A loss of the sense of eternity means that we have lost our values of our spiritual fervor and devotion. It means that we've lost our value upon who God is. We see that those in the text that rejected the wedding invitation had rather farm or sell than to celebrate with the king. And I want to tell you the sin of this last day movement is busyness. Busyness, cares of life. That's choked the word and calls us to become unfruitful. Our priorities are not the things of the kingdom of heaven. Our priorities are in the here and now. And yet, you know what? We lust to conceive. And then we, we lust to conceive so that we can have more. We work to get. And the more that we get, the more we got to work to keep what we've got. I wish I could say that again. Amen. The more you want, the more you'll go after it, and the more you go after it, the more work is acquired, and the more that you get, the more work's acquired to keep what you got. I'm getting better at it, ain't I? Amen? And you see people falling into a trap all the time. Busyness. I want to promise you this, that if you'll follow God's principles, listen to me, you may not have everything your mom and dad have while you're young, but if you'll set out doing the right principle, God's blessing will bring you about to where you'll be full, running over, and he'll withhold no good thing from them that walk uprightly, and you will be blessed. Blessed without measure. Amen? These guests would rather invest in the world than to invest in the kingdom of God and eternity. Matthew 6, 19 says, Lay not up yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust do corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust do corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there's your heart also. We must examine where our hearts are truly at here this morning. What is our devotional life like? What is the true passion of our hearts? What is the priorities in our life? 
How much do I give to the kingdom versus giving to the secular? How much do I try to secure my life on earth in regards to trying to secure my life within the natural, the physical? Do I have more earthly treasures than I do heavenly treasures stored up? These are the kinds of questions that you and I as believers need to ask ourselves. And notice that not only does this guest reject and refuse a wonderful invitation, They don't only ignore the Father's love and compassion and long-suffering by sending them a second chance. Not only do they refuse his open invitation to bountiful provision and blessings, but we also see that the invited guests that returned down their everyday obligations, that they tortured and killed the king's servants who brought the invitation to them. That's sad, isn't it? Verse 6 says, And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Not only do these invited guests reject such a wonderful invitation, but they viciously turned against the, and attacked those that brought the invitation to them. And the key is here, and I'm going to skip a lot of my notes because of time, and I feel like the Lord's wanting me to bring to a certain point. But the key is that the servants gave out the invitation. The invitation is always the point of conflict. The world will love you as long as you're not challenging them. But the minute that you begin to be that true Christian, that real light on the, a light that's set on a hill, a candle that's not put under a bushel, when you become the light of the world and you become the spokesman for God and you begin to give people invitations by the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, one or two things are going to happen. They're going to fall conviction and get saved or they're going to hate you. They're going to come against you. Folks, you mark my word, you're going to see more hostility in these last closing hours of the church dispensation in America than you've ever seen before. There is a rising hostility towards the church in America. They hate us. Uh, You're not getting this, I don't think. Listen to what Ephesians 5 and 11 says. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. The Bible tells us if we're not having conflict with sinners, with those that are carnal, with those that are holy, it's because maybe we're not reproving them. Maybe we're not giving them the invitation. And Jesus said in first, uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 and 20, I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. In other words, you've got to be very careful. And he said, ye adulterers and adulterers, know ye not that the friendship of the world is an enmity with God, and whoso will be the friend of the world will be the enemy of God. He said the friendship of the world is an enmity. They're at war with the principles of God. I could go on and on and on and on uh, talking about how that, you know, Jesus even said they hated me. Listen to what he says in John 15. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. If you're loved by the world, then you need to check out whether how, how you're representing Jesus Christ. Because they hate Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul even said, woe unto the man that all men speak well of. Jesus said in John 15, 25, they all hated me without a cause. But we see after the king, seeing that his servants were abused and killed, that he got angry. And listen, he went and he punished those bidden guests. Listen to what it says in verse 7 and 8. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then said he to the servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Now notice something. It's important for us to remember that these were special, invited, chosen, bidden, hand-peaked guests that the Lord, the king, begins to fight against. This parable is symbolic of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. Hello? 
It wasn't that God did not want anybody else saved, but he wanted Israel to be the, the priesthood of believers on the earth to perpetuate the gospel and get people saved. Like the intended guest, the nation of Israel rejected the invitation and killed those who delivered the message of invitation to them. We see that all throughout the Old Testament and New. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came at his own and his own received him not. He came to his own Jewish nation, his own Jewish people, and they did not receive him. They stoned the prophets. They killed the apostles. They even tortured the Christians, the Pharisees. The religious sect done this. The Jews Can I have an amen? And when Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem in the hours prior to his death, this is what he said. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered thee like children together, even as a hen gather her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Here's Jesus sitting on the side of Jerusalem weeping over it saying, oh, I wanted to gather you like children. You'd gather your children like a hen would gather her chicks under a wing to protect you, to overshadow you, put you under the wings of the Almighty. But you would not allow me. Instead, you killed, the, you killed and stoned the prophets that I sent to you. You rejected me as your Messiah. I've come unto you, and you have rejected me as the Lord of glory. And as a result of that, we know in 70 AD, the Romans plundered Jerusalem, and it was burnt. God gave them a second chance. But look at all the things that Israel has went through just because they rejected the invitation of the wedding. The king of the father of the son now rejects the special invited guests because they were considered to be unworthy. Now what's he going to do? Now he's saying, Israel, you're rejected. So what am I going to do? Look at verse 8. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden Israel were not worthy. It appears that the wedding is put on hold because of a lack of guests. Is that possible? Could the rapture of the church already have happened if everybody would have obeyed? I always, I, I, you know, my mind goes weird sometimes. That maybe this wedding should have took place a long, long, long time ago, but it had to be put on hold because Israel missed her calling. You and I could have done been in heaven if it wasn't for Israel. We can put the blame game, can't we? It's like um, I love when uh, Gayla Allison was having her baby and there was so much anguish and pain and I went in as a pastor. The first, she said, first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven, I'm going to punch Eve in the mouth. <laughs> Amen. Maybe we could have been in heaven if Israel would have met. What happens when you and I don't step up to our calling? What's put on hold? What's prolonged? Just how important is our calling, really? Has it got that kind of eternal significance? Of course it does. Your calling is without repentance. You've got a DNA that no one else has. You can only do certain things that God intended for you to do, and no one can do them the way that you do them. You're unique. You're special. You're talented. You're gifted by God. No matter what your education is, no matter what your financial status is, doesn't matter if you've got an education or not, you're still special. It don't matter if you're black, white, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. It don't matter. You're special. You're gifted. You're a creation of God. He's not made junk. 
He formed you. He knew you while you were in your mother's belly and called you and ordained you in a giftedness and a calling that only you got. And when that calling is not put into action and, and you've not obeyed it and followed through, what kind of things has been prolonged as a result of your lack of obedience? There's no guests, so there can't be no wedding. The father now does something that he's never done before. He sends more servants with invitations, but this time he sends an invitation to everyone. Say everyone. Verse 9 says, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you find, bid to the marriage. He said, I have this special group over here, these bidden, these chosen, this elite group, the inner circle. But they wouldn't come, so I'll tell you what you do. You just go out and go in, in the highways. One translation even says in the highways and byways. In other words, in the gutters, in the alleys. Find the bum. Hello? Here we see a Gentile bride being formed right before our eyes. Here we see the king open his invitation to all because his bidden Jews, the Israel's, rejected him. And because of Israel's rejection, his invitation and then invites all men to participate in his redemption. Praise God. That's me and you. Revelations 21 and 7 says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that thirst say, Come. Let them all drink of the water of life freely. John 3, 16, 17, don't get bored with it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but that all should be saved and come to eternal life. For God sent not his Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I love what John 7, 37 says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood crying and said, If any man, any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. As the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I like John 6 and 37. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. I like Acts 2, 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I like 1 Timothy 2 and 4 where it says that God would have all men to come to the knowledge of truth and to be saved. Romans 10, 12 tells us for there's no difference between the Jew or the Gentile or the Greek for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon his name. 2 Peter 3 and 9 says that God's not slack concerning his promise as some men Counts likeness, but God is long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come into repentance. Amen. We see by all these scriptures that no one is left out from the invitation of the king. Everyone's invited to this place, not just the elite group, not those just with special invitations. The king is going to make sure that this wedding is going to have guests. <laughs> Hallelujah. These guests are going to be socially and culturally diverse because our text state in verse 10, so the servants went out of the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and both good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. I love that. Here we see the elite, the outcast, the rich, the poor, the royalty, the paupers, the skilled, the ignorant, the social, the desirable, the vagabonds, the boss, the worker, we see men, women, children, boys, girls, black, white, brown, red, American, Spanish, German, Chinese. We see that every culture, race, and nationality will make up this list. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue will have represented the wedding supper. If you don't believe me, go to Roma, I mean, go to Revelations in the first three chapters and read it, and you'll see how the, there's every tongue, tribe, and nation there representing, sitting around the throne of God, as represented in the 24 elders, praising God and glorifying God for their salvation. Now let me ask you a question. Here we are. 
We're a part of the bride of the Gentile church. I'm working on this message. I don't even know where I'm going to go with it. How many's ever heard of the, the rapper, what's his name, that just got saved? That's him. I don't know who he is. They say he had one of the most vile mouths that you could ever listen to. And he's given his life to the Lord. The other day, someone said in one of his services, just testifying, over a thousand people gave their heart and life to Jesus Christ. Pray, give God praise for that. Amen. They said tens of thousands of people are following him, and he's beginning to step. He's traveling around now with a choir. And he's just doing great things for the Lord. And then the church is criticizing him, of course. Oh, he's an instant celebrity. Well, you know, we don't need to criticize him. Yes, he needs some discipleship. Yes, he needs to watch out for the pitfalls. Yes, he's an excited, new born-again Christian. The other day, they interviewed him. They asked him a question why that he's so drastically changed. And I don't know the whole story. My son was telling me about it. And he just answered it this way. Well, when you're asleep, you're not quite alert, are you? But when you're awake, you become alert. He said, I was asleep, but God awakened me. I'm alert now. And here's this one guy rocking the world while the church is doing nothing. So could it be, maybe we're just like Israel. Our priorities ain't in the right place. And God has to reach out here in the world and save a rapper who was so filthy and degrading who at one time thought himself to be God. Proclaimed himself as God. And yet God marvelously saves him and he's won more souls in the last probably few months than what the biggest majority of the church world has won in a decade. Where's our passion and our zeal? Where's the evidence and the fruits of our passion? Woo! I'm preaching better than you're letting on right now. We're getting down where we live right now. Come on. Ball games are more important than revivals. We get so caught up in things that we don't even view as that can be idolatry that we put more value more time more money more resources into those things than we do in funding the kingdom of God I've said this a lot and I just love saying it because it's one of my favorite sayings there's more people in the United States spending money on dog food and pedigree than in the entire giving to the church world in the whole United States. Poochie Poo gets more money than Jesus Christ from the church. Sad, isn't it? The very invitation that Israel had and he squandered it. We better watch out unless we squandered it as well. God's given this church an invitation. Woo! Come up hither. Come and let me show you what you can expect within your future. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I know he's going to have ding-dongs up there. And a big glass of milk. I guarantee you he's going to have cornbread and butter. And he's going to have fried bologna called Miller Sandwich. Now you can say it's not going to be there, but I believe it's going to be there. Amen. The fatted calf's going to be there. The oxen's going to be there. Whoop. Oh, man. 
Weak eyes not seen, ears not heard. Nor is it even in the heart of man what God's preparing for us, giving us a holy invitation. But are we living down here as like this is the only life that we have to live? Are we going to squander the invitation that God has put out before us? And you know what he's telling us to do as the church? Go to the highways and the byways and compel people to come in. You you know, when when God blesses you with something, you always want to share it with someone else, don't you? The first, when it, the minute I got saved, the first thing I done is run and told my friends. And I was so excited and 99% of them left me. Only one came and got saved with me. Hello? But I was excited about telling people about Jesus Christ. Over the years, a lot of those that ran away from me has come back in the latter years with their lives twisted and their lives bruised and their lives in bondage and their lives in shackles. And I've helped them to be freed and libered by presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of them are saved. They're on their way to heaven and they're going to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want you to stand with me this morning. Hallelujah. The first people I want to talk to right now is those that's never been saved. God's given you a holy invitation to a spiritual encounter that's going to take place called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and only those that are worthy are going to be able to go. You say, why are they called guests? There are three different, now this has got to do with the garments, but there's three different words in the Greek language that talks about guests. One of them is to mean to throw down, to lay down, to sleep over. It is used when Jesus goes to Martha and Mary's house and he spends the night, he throws himself down. He sleeps. He's a guest there. He goes to bed. But the guest in this passage of Scripture says to set oneself down at a banquet meal as a corpse. I thought as a corpse, that don't make sense. And it's tied to the same Greek word that describes the Holy Ghost in the connotation of the real translation. In some passages, he's called Holy Guest. So what it is saying is, let me just back it up and tell you what it's saying is, unless you become as a corpse, you cannot be a guest of the Holy Spirit to the banquet board. In other words, you gotta die out to yourself. Selfishness and self-centeredness that's ruling the day, that's causing us to lose sight of eternity and lose sight of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, it has to fall off in order for us to be participants at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. So I'm asking you this morning, if you're not saved, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're not saved here this morning, I want you to be a part of the, go with me to the marriage supper of the Lamb, please. Don't be lost. Come up here and let me pray with you and we'll go together hand in hand. 